0: Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu code SUMMER. Welcome to Live Life Better from Virgin. I'm Melissa Hemsley, and in this series, we're on a sensory voyage. Last week, we dissected taste— Today, though, it's sound that we're tuning into. And in the studio, I'm joined by Dr. Kelly Snook, a one-time NASA scientist who creates cutting-edge music tech and ended up going on tour with Ariana Grande. Hi. Hello. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And hello, Nick Ryan, a multi-award-winning composer, sound designer, artist and audio specialist who is a very respected voice in the future of sound. Thanks, Nick.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I, I mean, I've got, actually got bios on both of you with multi-awards and professors and doctorates and everything, <laughs> and then really nicely, as we were all just having coffee while, while waiting to start, you two are a, a good mate, right? Yeah. Yeah, we know each other
1: very well. Yeah, <laughs> and, and as a bonus, we've been trying to get in touch for ages, so you brought oh, us together. I'm the
0: Scylla Black yeah. of the podcasting yes. world.
1: Yes. Absolutely.
0: Oh, this is fantastic. Was a very
2: so, happy reunion this morning.
0: So I'm potentially responsible for some incredible sound projects happening, being brought into the world. I'm very happy about that. Right, Okay, good. And we'll also be talking to the man who once held the record for the world's largest whoopee cushion, Professor Trevor Cox, (laughs) who also happens to be the author of Now You're Talking. Right. So Kelly and Nick, you both work in the business of creating moods with music. And this podcast is, of course, called Live Life Better. What is it about sound that impacts and has such an impact on the way we feel? Like, w- what would you say to that? And did you always know that you had a special relationship with sound? I Kelly. Did. Yeah, I did. did. I
2: always knew. I always knew. My My mother told me that when I was, before I could talk and before I could walk, properly. I would pull myself up to my dad's electric piano and mimic the chord that the trains would make when they would go by <laughs> on the on the keyboard. So I just was just a very aware of, of sounds around me and and how they made me feel and, and especially pitches and melodies and chords. And your dad was a musician? Yes. Both okay. bad, both my father's music Okay. And also you've got the most amazing voice. Do
0: people in sound have good voices? Uh- <laughs> Is that a thing, yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> you've got such a great voice. Oh, thank and you. Nick, when did you know that, that sound and sound was your thing?
1: Well, I, I, I had a, a very kind of special relationship with sound from a very early age. My mum, she grew up in Africa and she had a very limited collection of records, which were sort of they didn't kind of. Include records from you know contemporary culture. Really, they they were kind of a lot of classical um, records and some musicals, and having a very restricted palette of sound kind of got me really into listening. Um, So I wasn't so interested in the kind of musicology but I was much more interested in the kind of sensation of listening. Um, and, and I was also really interested in technology because, you know, something we might go on to talk about later is that sound experience or listen, the experience of listening is, is inseparable from the, the technology that we use to to play back sound, and it always has been, whether that's an instrument or... Uh, a recorder of some kind so I got really into um, the double the double tape deck that we had in the living room and I used to do um, when I was about 11 I used to go into the kitchen and interview my mum I used the headphones as the microphone I used to plug that into the head in the the (laughs) headphones into the microphone jack and I used to record from one tape deck to another and interview my mum and sometimes my brother. Those were the only two guests I had to, to draw on.
0: Who, who, who gave better bands?
1: I think my mum did, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And how did you know what you were doing? Were you, were you, you couldn't Google things then? Not that I'm saying you're very old.
1: No, sort of it thing, was... But you,
0: just, you were like, I want to create things already.
1: There was electricity back yeah. then, so uh, <laughs> we, uh, we, uh, we had a double tape deck, which had a CD player as well, and that kind of gave me three, three inputs, so I could actually dub in quite a sophisticated way.
0: Where are all those tapes now, those I've, radio shows? I've still
1: got them. Yeah. Have,
0: have, have you ever revealed any?
1: Uh, no, but I listened to one. Could we o- not just get a little
0: extract <laughs> and just put it in? Do you, did you have a show? Was Did it have a name? Yeah,
1: it was called Ryan Radio.
0: Oh, my gosh, that is Nick Ryan of Ryan Radio. <laughs> and obviously, all the Ryans, the mother and the brother. Yeah. It's like the Ryan family radio. Yeah, I've, got it,
1: I've got it. I found it the other day, actually. I'll look it out. <laughs>
0: Do you think 11-year-old Ryan of Ryan Radio knew what you would become? Award-winning, BAFTA award-winning?
1: Yes. Well, no, he did, absolutely. He, yeah. was, he was on a trajectory. <laughs> he knew
0: what he wanted. <laughs> he was actually feeling a bit behind age 11, wasn't he? Okay. like, I need to get there. OK, amazing. And um, moods, let's talk about moods and emotions. So how can we harness music's power to make us happier? I mean... I know that today, for example, it was snowing, wasn't it? I, I could not get out of bed, so I put on some nineties garage, really loud. <laughs> you do what you gotta do, and I, yeah. Oh, <laughs> do you not prove? <laughs> Is that the worst idea for you? And that that music gets me out of bed. I mean, I literally just danced into the shower. So for me, that's my feel good. What about you guys?
2: Yeah, I don't. I wish I used music that way to feel good. I just don't use it recreationally because I'm. Uh, I make yes. so much of it. Yeah, I, if I actually find that a lot of. A lot of friends of mine are in in the same position. Friends who work on creating music don't often just kind of use it as a recreation. But I think a lot about how music is going to make people feel, especially in some of the music that I work on that's on the – I work on devotional music. So this is music that's intended to put people in a devotional state, Mm. really. And and that's a – you know that it's a bit like film scoring but for an unknown person <laughs> with an unknown relationship to music so it's kind of on on the other side of it you know just trying to anticipate how something is going to make someone feel and create that and then shape it and then uncreate it if it's not the right if it's not the right how do you know if it's
0: not right working do you like to watch people as they listen
2: we have a little listening team oh, of people that we send things to when we feel like we've kind of got when we're on the right track. Yeah, and sometimes we're really not on the right track, and then we just you know you just have to you just have to be willing to let go of your own ideas and try to I don't know channel something higher, which is a is a really difficult thing to do, but the results have been re- encouraging. You know, just to even imagine that it's possible to kind of design an experience for someone that's going to yes. put them in a certain in a certain mood. Um, Where can we listen to this? Um, is it ready?
0: Is it ready for listening? The one not, we, I don't mean right now. The one I mean. that we did in the
2: summer is just is going to come out in the next couple of months. But the one previous to that, I just brought it with me so you, I could give you. A thank copy of thank you. Thank uh, you. This is music by Luke Slot, and it's based on writings from the Bahá'í Faith. So there are spiritual writings and designed for people to use in their prayer, gath- devotional gatherings or in their own private meditations or prayers. I love this. We're going to link to this, aren't we? <laughs> yeah.
1: I think it's really interesting I'm, what you say about... You that. Um, I think as a musician, or many musicians uh, that I know as well, don't tend to listen or use music recreationally. Um, and I'm certainly one of those people. And I think the experience of of making music of your own is about listening and you're kind of constantly reviewing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But the experience of listening to someone else's music is a completely different thing altogether. And sometimes it's not that helpful. I mean, for many, many years, I actually restricted the amount of music I listened to to very, very little because I I used to find myself feeling a bit sort of envious of other people's music. (laughs) It can
2: can give you a sense of panic.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, But actually now, interestingly, since Spotify turned up, um, and other, other streaming services. Of oh, course. he's good. Uh, he's done this before. <laughs> Since streaming services turned <laughs> up, I um I I actually kind of I've never listened to so much music, and and I've kind of completely flipped that, and I'm now listening to tons and tons of music, and I, because I'm listening to so much. And I'm learning so much about what's out there. I don't feel that kind of that sense of of panic. Mm. Um, I'm I'm really inspired all the time by 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 what's out there, and and that kind of ranges, you know, a huge range of music. And being able to instantly listen to something that I heard as a child is really really satisfying yeah. as yeah. well. You mm-hmm. kind of go on these little little journeys. I've got a playlist which is. Um, all all things that, you know, it's my favourite. It's called Pensive, Favourite Pensive. Mm-hmm. And it's all my favourite things that are kind of slightly pensive, but I really, really love. I've noticed it's really difficult to create um, a, a playlist which is my fa- favourite music of all time. Yeah. Um, because uh, that kind of tends to shift quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And some things that you think are your favourites, after you've heard them a couple of times, you don't want to hear them again for a I long agree. time.
0: I agree. And is this a bit of a dark question? Have you thought about what you'd like played at your, your funeral, your wake?
2: Mm. I I haven't, but actually one of these songs that's on the new album, my mother said to me, it was the most incredible conversation I, I've ever had with my mother after she listened to the song. She, she said, she, she <laughs> it's a very long prayer, It's a, and then the song is 16 minutes long, so it's the most difficult thing I've, I've ever made. And she said, first of all, I, I just... I think that you've achieved your purpose in life and oh. it makes me feel like I've achieved my purpose in life and like I think when it comes to well-being like that is really one of the thing one of the things that gives you the biggest sense of well-being is is being aligned with your purpose and so to have my mother expressed to me that she had found her purpose through what I'd created. She'd never said anything to me like that before. And I thought, wow, that it's even if nobody else in the planet ever listens to this, just to have that experience of connection with my mother it was just... Um. And so she said, she said, this song is the one I want you to play at my funeral. She said, not because it has anything to do with dying, but just because I want everyone to hear it. And, she said, and yeah. she's a musician. Like, I grew oh, up... Yes. So when I was three, was when I, she started taking me to orchestra rehearsals, and I started, you know really trying to keep myself not bored. And it was before the days of screens or anything. So I literally would have to sit in the in this time. empty auditorium and watch this orchestra rehearse for two hours. And for a three-year-old, that's, like, pretty intense. You have to really start to invent games for yourself. And I <laughs> I would start to try and, like, look at the different inst- people that are sitting on stage and try to f- listen to their instrument, like yeah. to hear my Pick mom's violin and, and that tuba or that. And just the... And as I was growing older, just realizing how incredible is that—that that you can take one sound wave that's coming at your head, that you can, your brain can pull it apart and decompose it and like isolate a specific portion of that sound yeah. after it's been but all I combined think, together. I that, I'd that, love that.
1: I think that experience is for for many listeners one of of, of a kind of homogenous sound, and it's only when you you've actually started to make music and break it down. Yeah. Um and and you you kind of train your ear to identify specific elements in a piece of music. Yeah. That you can um you can hear it in that way. Yeah. But but most people don't hear music that way. Um in fact they don't necessarily think they're they're hearing. They um they might think that they're feeling rather than hearing. Right. And I think I was always struck by the fact that once I had learnt to break down A Beatles song, for example, into you know drums, bass, lead guitar, and vocal, which is very easy to do because they were all split. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) they were split from left to right, and you could just unplug the left ear, and you just hear the drums and the bass or whatever. Um, But once you you had heard that, you'd kind of looked behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. You can't undo that ever. And in fact, yeah. you're kind of... Um, it's a curse, really. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it is. And you, you can't, you can no, never again can you hear music as, uh, as, as one experience. Just a experience. wash of,
2: yeah, just yeah. a wash of, of sound. Yeah. Well,
1: I was going to
0: ask you about this, Nick, um, and you talked about the, the interplay of, of all the senses. Um, help me pronounce this. Syn- Synesthesia. Synesthesia.
1: Yeah, so that is a hard one. Synesthesia. Tell us about it. So synesthesia is something that one in twenty-three of us experience. It's very common. Some people think that even more um, than than that experience it. In fact, it, it's a, it's a part of the way that the world is wired into the brain. Um, do you, for example, see days of the week uh, as colours? I don't. Or numbers as colours? No. OK, so you're, you're not one. You're not lucky enough to be one of the 20s. I 20, want to be one. one. Do you? I do. do. You, I do. do and you, well. you both
0: do. Yeah. OK, and that's why you're both incredible at this.
1: So synesthesia is, is a, a mixing of two or more senses. And um, synesthetes or synesthetic people often experience one sense in the language of another. So for me, I have audiovisual synesthesia, which is thought to exist in one in 2,000 people. And it is an experience of sound as image or image as sound. It's not always bi-directional, but in my case, I can experience a, a particular piece of music as colour and line and texture and shape and volume. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other way around, so I can experience some physical entity in the world, like um, you know, a sculptural object, as sound. So when I look at it, I can hear a sonic impression of that, that shape or that colour, or that texture.
0: So can you differentiate? So when you're looking at something and you think it's beautiful, if if you can hear the sound and you don't love the sound, does that spoil it for you? Or do you only see them as... they yeah, so. are one in the, so, one in the so, same. So the
1: synesthetic experience is is one in which well it, it, Walter Murch, there's there's a film editor called Walter Murch. He's also a sound uh, supervisor and sound editing supervisor in film. He's very famous uh, for his approach to sound. He he created the soundtrack for Apocalypse Now, for example. And he he talks about the experience of watching film as being in the imagination of the viewer, the sound and the image being greater than the sum of the parts. So they become not just sound and image, but a third entity which is is greater than the, than the two modalities, as it were. So you, you tend to, as, as a synesthete, to not experience one or t'other, you're actually experiencing just a sensory a multi sensory experience. Mm. The same for me.
2: So to help, but us... not audio or visual for me. What, and of, what's for you? It's more audio mathematical and textural. And textual, so, yeah. I kind of see and hear like kind of equations and 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 just mathematics and physics physics stuff. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <that's> <laughs> so uh,
0: could we could we pick a piece of music that we might all know? And could you tell me what you you what what colors you see? And could you tell me what textures you feel? Mm. What, what could we pick? Something that we everybody listening would know.
1: Uh, we could pick. Um... Moonlight Sonata.
0: Moonlight Sonata, okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, what, do you, what do you see? So I see uh, blue, and yeah. one might sort of think that that's a cultural interpretation because of the word moonlight, and that's a cue. But actually, for me, it's about the tonality of the piano, the singularity of the cadences, and the harmonic structure of that piece, and where it is on the keyboard, Mm, So if you said to, and there is some evidence to suggest that those mappings between the senses are cross-cultural and exist in everyone and are um, not subject to cultural cues. So, for example, if I said to you, let's take an example of uh, taste and pitch. So if I said to you, where are lemons on a piano keyboard?
0: Very high. Oh, I, I, I think I'd say high. I'm am not, not sure I'd say very high. I'd say high, though, yeah.
1: Right. Why? Why are they not low?
0: I don't know, because when you said the word lemon, my mouth went like that, and it made me feel high. <laughs> like, it stretched me, and I went up. I don't know.
1: So these, these there are lots of things. Fascinating. Where would you say that, um, in terms of scale, If you t- thought about a volumetric space? Yes. So, incidentally, the word volume in sound, we tend to think of as amplitude, level, loudness but actually it literally means volumetric space
0: the space so, it takes up yeah
1: mm. yeah and that's related to wavelength and amplitude and so on yes um but if i was to ask you what size would a low sound be compared to a high sound
0: i don't know what i what i feel it's i've big, never, Nick, never thought it's about big. It. is it big it's a low big. sound is big. a low ah. a low sound feels heavy and maybe wider yeah. yeah it's big
1: and 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 a small sound describe a small sound like a tiny little the sound of a triangle
0: yeah it's 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 a little titchy thing it's not taking up much volume at all
1: so that again is cross-cultural and that 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 mapping between um visual and haptic sensation Mm -hmm. and pitch um is to do with our experience of the physical world so we tend to from an early age learn that Big things make low sounds. Elephants make, you know, elephants' (laughs) feet. Uh, The sound of feet on a floorboard is low. And the sound of tiny little crackly um, pouring sugar onto a table. Mm. Tiny particulates are Mm. produced at a very high frequency. And that's sort of hardwired into our brain evolutionarily as well. Mm. There are some sounds that research has discovered which are to do with the human body and, and sensory coordination and activity, which... Uh, produce activity in the motor cortex in the brain. So if you were to listen to the sound of uh, recording of footsteps, then the motor cortex in the listener would be activated in a way in which it would be activated if they were walking. So, With
2: mirror neurons. Yeah,
1: so... Uh, 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 neurons are activated, uh, which are to do with the same activity yes. uh, that you're hearing in the recording, uh, as opposed to if you were to hear a recording of birdsong, as you were not a bird, mm-hmm. you won't have uh, those, those we'll kind be able of. To do no, you won't yeah. have that. that Similarly,
2: if, if you're a piano player and you hear some, uh, you watch a recording or you hear a recording of someone playing the piano, then your own actual physical m- neurons that would be activated when you were playing the piano are also activated. But if you're not piano player and don't have that experience then Mm -hmm. then you don't have the same brain activity
1: which is why listening um has a lot more to do with our sense of sensory coordination and uh spatial awareness than than a lot of people think It, it sound is responsible for balance for example yes so that's probably why listening to music as well as Giving us an emotional response, gives us an energetic response, and a kind of kinesthetic response as well. The
0: kinesthetic response, yes. And f- for for those of us that want to enjoy maybe a favourite piece of music, or, or delve deeper, or or just any tips for when we're listening to something new, because I'm can't, I actually just want I'm really enjoying this, and I'm like, when <laughs> I I'm going to run home to listen. <laughs> To your music, and I'm thinking, how can I most enjoy a piece of music? Is it is it closing my eyes? Do you, when you first listen to something, do you close your eyes? Do you prefer a headphone, or do you like to play it?
2: I mean, a particular I, I feel volume like,
0: on a sound system.
2: I feel like people people have very different relationships to how they imagine they are processing sound. Yeah. Um, but what, what people may not realize, and I was really shocked to learn when I studied the way the brain the way the brain hears because it's actually your brain that's hearing it's not yeah. your ears it's not the frequencies themselves it's how your brain is processing them and when you, when when something comes into your into your ears that is organized sound so music mm-hmm. is organized and it's organized in so many different ways that people don't realize that what the brain does is it immediately takes all the different elements of that music and breaks it down and processes it in different places in their brain so the rhythmic Part of the music is processed in one way, yeah. and the pitch and the um, melodies are processed in a different place, and chord progressions are are processed in yet another place, and all these places are associated with memories and smells and other senses. As and that's Nick our emotional response. Yeah, so it really it's it's so individualized because of this that to start to be conscious, I guess, of of just how. Um, how the brain is is well, all the work that the brain how is doing. Whatever your brain is, it, yeah, right? it really does. It happens without us realizing it. Um, but when I started to be more aware of that, I started to listen to music a lot more differently, a lot differently. And I started to imagine, okay, well, how how could I manipulate this? How can I? How could I encode information in this? And um, how could I? How could I use sound in a way that people use scientific visualization to do scientific yes. um, representation of sound? So I'm interested in people starting to. Become more aware, and, as Nick said, train themselves to listen in a different way to really try and even starting to be more conscious of all the different things that are happening to you when the, when songs come in it, it can it can sort of ruin it for you, but it can also make it make it so much better mm. um, because then you can start to even articulate for yourself, well, why do I like this what What, what is it about this that makes my brain light up Yes
1: sound you know is just an external vibration' it 's immaterial. But it's only when it's received in the brain does it actually become reanimated. And that's why, you know, you can... I, I watched someone on the bus the other day listening to a song which they were really enjoying. No-one else was enjoying it on the bus. <laughs> but they they, they they were really enjoying it because it was a track that they loved. But it was coming out of a, a crappy yeah. mono speaker on the bottom of their iPhone and they had it up to their ear. So there's this paradox where you sort of... people. Tend to be mistaken in thinking that they need, in order to enjoy music, uh, it's about fidelity. So Mm -hmm. they need to have a fantastic stereo, a fantastic pair of headphones, and you know that obviously increases the pleasure of listening. But you can also enjoy something coming out of a crappy iPhone speaker, especially Um, if you know
2: it and you've heard it a a lot. lot It's about
1: what that is about. What the the music means to you. Um, I love that, that you said we're a co- you can be a co-author. Yeah, yeah we, we two are co-authors. Way. Yeah. You are,
2: without, yeah. even if you don't realise
1: that yeah.
0: everyone's
2: yeah, a co-author.
0: On the subject of sound as identity, I spoke to Professor Trevor Cox, author of Now You're Talking, earlier on today. Find out how the sound of our voices affects our identity and relationships with those around us after the break.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
0: Finding happiness in a satisfying and fulfilling career can be a challenge. But when you throw additional barriers into the mix, the idea of job satisfaction can seem like an unattainable goal.
1: The thing about the arts industry is that it talks about being diverse in some areas, but it needs to be diverse in all areas, you know, you need to be accepting towards everyone and anyone who wants to be a professional performer.
0: Breaking Barriers is a groundbreaking podcast series. In each episode, two people come together to have an open and frank conversation about barriers in the workplace. I'm Yasmin abdul Majid, and I'll be guiding you through each episode. The whole series is available right now on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you happen to be listening. Breaking Barriers. An original podcast from Virgin. Hello, Trevor. Thank you for joining us today. Great pleasure. You've been compared to the David Attenborough of the acoustic realm. So what first interested you about the sonic world around us?
3: I think like a lot of people who are in acoustics, I started off, my interest came through music, really. I I played the clarinet as a kid and I play the saxophone now, but I was also really into science. So I combined my two interests of music and science into studying acoustics.
0: And Now You're Talking is a really fascinating book. That's your second book, isn't it? You've got Sonic Wonderland as well.
3: Yeah, my first book was about sort of going around the world trying to find the most amazing sounds in the world, which was a lot of fun, took me to deserts and all sorts of really weird places. But this latest one is all about the human voice, something we, we all have and we all experience.
0: And you say in Now You're Talking, well, our voices are our primary noisemakers. They enable us to have a voice and an opinion. How do you think, in your studies, that our voices shape our lives and indeed humanity? How how can we use our voices to do good by the
3: world? Well, I think if I just start off with the identity thing, I I think we kind of overlook how important it is for identity because we we use it all the time. We spend a lot of time deciding what to wear. I decided what to put on today and how to do my hair and everything. But we we spend less time thinking about how we sound with our voice. But of course for a lot of people that's our first impression your first impression of me because we're not in the same studio is is by voice not actually by the visual so it's really crucial in set, shaping our identity I mean Britain a lot of it's wrapped up in things like class you notice I say class and not class which shows even though I'm talking to you from my university in Manchester University of Salford I, I'm not from the north originally and you start painting a picture of who I am from from these kind of, kind of information so it's it's really, it's a part of our identity, but something we we tend to think less about because it's just kind of part of us and we, we don't think we have control over it.
0: And back to Sonic Wonderland. So you said you went on a crazy, crazy expedition. At any point, did you just go, what am I doing?
3: I think on many occasions, <laughs> I, I thought, what am I doing? Actually, the starting point was was going down a sewer. That was before I thought, I thought of the whole idea of going and looking for amazing sounds. And it was for a radio interview, actually. Someone said, would you talk about the acoustics of sewers? And I thought, OK. But it wasn't an official tour or anything. They literally went down into a park in London, opened a manhole cover, and said, well, we're going to climb down there. Oh, so no was, health and safety. <laughs> you know, no health and safety. Me and the other guests stood there going, oh, uh, are, we, are we really up for this? And yeah, so we just wandered around this drain surf a bit. It's not something I would recommend. But uh, yeah, that was probably the most disgusting and horrible place that I went on my trips. But yeah. Uh, I also went to some nice places. I mean, I mean, there's places like going up onto the sand dunes in America where you get these booming musical sand dunes that hum when you go down and create an avalanche on them. You know, you could maybe think, what am I doing there when you're trooping around in 30 degree heat trying to get a sand dune to boom for you and not being able to find the right spot. But uh, I mean, that was just it was an amazing experience.
0: So on that note, I wanted to ask you, Sonic Wonderland, you talk us through it by and, and encourage us to become better listeners instead of just looking at things, listening to them too. For people listening at home, is there uh, any tricks that you've learned that enable us to become better listeners and, I don't know, listen deeper, interpret things differently? What would you say to that?
3: One thing I, w- I would say is actually we're all really good listeners. So people might think, I don't have the skill to do this, but actually you listening to me speaking now is an immensely complicated process and understanding what I'm saying so you've definitely got the brain power to do it it's more actually a question of paying attention so really simple things like take your take your earbuds out and go for a walk around the city and just listen and see what you find is is all that you kind of need to do I mean there are people who organize these things called sound walks where you do you do this kind of formally but all you need to do is probably shut up turn your mobile phone off turn your mp3 player off and just listen
0: and what about you when you're at home and relaxing or anything are you um funny about unwanted sound or do you like sound to just wash over you in the natural sounds or do you like things very quiet i know we were finding a a place to to talk earlier and there was there's always sound isn't there are you are you very conscious and heightened to
3: it i think we all need respite from noise, and there's plenty of evidence to show that n- noise at a high level consistently causes problems. Uh, uh, for example, I've just had a paper out which shows how noise in classrooms affects the learning of adolescents. And basically, if you try and get a kid doing a, a task like kind of a, like a SAT test. Their attainment is much less in reading tasks if it's very mm. noisy. Maybe not that surprising, but there's chronic effects of having chronic noise around. And one of those is, is things like increased cardiovascular disease and things like that. So yeah. noise is bad for us. And so we do need respites. Do you like that peace and quiet when you've been
0: tuning in to, music, to, to sound and voices all day?
3: Yeah, I want, I want to escape it all. Uh, I live in a quiet area, so I'm quite lucky. And I've got very quiet neighbours, so everything's good at home.
0: Okay. Have your quiet neighbours ever heard your whoopee cushion?
3: Uh, not at home. I don't think it's ever been home. So they're, they're probably quite safe. They've had to listen to me learning the saxophone, which is pretty bad. Uh, but oh, I suppose we ought to explain. Okay, we I'm going to explain. explain
0: just in case anyone joined at the part where I asked Professor Trevor Cox about his world's largest whoopee cushion. So you know, you tell us you've got you once held the Guinness World Record, or you do still? Does someone get your crown?
3: Yeah, I'm afraid yeah, no. that's a world record. Yeah, I think it might be currently in, in either Holland or America. I'm not sure which. Why group don't you get there. it back? I think you've had it once I mean <laughs> so we, we I was very lucky to do a stage show at, at the Royal Albert Hall I mean and you, you know you know the size of that stage there yeah. we were trying to think of stage props to use and the physics behind the whoopee cushion is actually the same physics that operates when you make a sound when you make a vowel sound with your voice and so it's kind of a quite nice analogy and we were thinking well you know it's quite a fun thing quirky thing to do and I thought well what's the biggest one all oh, right. Let's make it a bit bigger. So the one I had with the world record was about two metres across. And, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a fun record to have. Unfortunately, it suffered over the years. Uh, I remember the Saturdays used it for comic relief one year and punched it with their nine-inch heels, which oh, was rather annoying. Oh, no. That was probably the kind of beginning of the end. But then, yeah, some Americans and some Dutch people have since made one it's even bigger, many metres across, maybe three.
0: OK. And, and lastly, the world's scariest scream?
3: Yeah, I got involved. It was it was coming up to Halloween and the Manchester Science Festival said, "Do you fancy doing an online experiment?" So we decided to do screams as it seemed uh, uh, very uh, apt for for Halloween. Yeah, it, it basically high pitched and with what's called a rough sound. So if you ah scream or ah you've got that sort of kind of roughness to your voice. So if you need to really go for it when you scream and if you scream high pitched with that roughness, that's what makes it particularly unpleasant is what we found.
0: Professor Trevor Cox, you are fascinating. So Sonic Wonderland and Now You're Talking, two incredible books. Thank you so much for joining us today and have a lovely day. Goodbye to you. Thank you. That was Professor Trevor Cox talking to us about The World's Scariest Scream. So from The World's Scariest Scream, can I ask you a quick question about ultrasonic and infrasonic sound because mm. the very first um, so this series is all about the senses those those listening know it and we're on sound now we had a, a teaser episode from the um, this guy called Sam Bompas the sensory event specialist, do you know them? Bompas and Parr, mm. have you come yeah, across I them? I do, yeah. Oh, yeah you know them. And uh, he talks about ultrasonic and infrasonic sound and I think we talked a little bit about in that horror movies and and the way that there's sound happening that we can't identify and hear and they are creeping us out. Mm. Do, 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 yeah, could you talk so- Tell us a bit about that.
1: Well, infrasonic is sound below our hearing threshold. Infrasonic, yes. Uh, so under under twenty kilohertz, under twenty hertz rather, and uh, inf- and ultrasonic is over twenty kilohertz. So, um, and and we tend to kind of we we tend to actually experience these sounds. So although our auditory cognition is restricted our sensation of the sounds extends into the ultra and infrasonic. So we can actually experience infrasonic low sound as vibration, because that's what all sound is. But certain infrasonic frequencies interact with our physiology in particular ways. The so brown note. The, the brown note, famously. <laughs> What's the brown uh, with, The brown note. <laughs> the brown note makes you empty your bowels, uh, and it's been used as a, a form of uh, weapon. And then slightly further up, um, just beneath uh, the audible threshold uh, at 19.5 hertz is what's often associated with infrasound. And it's a sound which has been used in some films. There's a film called Irreversible, um, which is a very horrible film, which has this uh, frequency in the soundtrack. And uh It's been proven to create a sense of fear and awe in the listener, even though they can't hear it. And it's also thought to produce visual hallucinations. It exists often as a standing wave frequency in crypts and caves which of course were some of the sites for our ancestors to create shamanistic rituals. Mm. So sound has a very yeah. important role in our prehistory. And it might be because of this frequency that um, hallucinations and trance-like states were induced In our ancestors. But what is known is that uh, 19.5 is related to the resonant frequency of the eyeball. And NASA proved that it it can cause the eyeball to vibrate. And therefore, we can can see things in our peripheral vision, which might account for why Mm -hmm. in haunted. So called places that are crypts and caves, we see things out of the corner of our eye that we can't. Oh, that's identify.
0: fascinating.
1: And then ultrasonic is, uh, you know, very, very, very high sound. And again, we've all experienced the sounds of bats or very high frequency television buzzing. Mm. And we know what it's like to be slightly on edge and not quite be able to hear something, but we know that there's something there.
0: And that reminds me, in, in Aside from that, other people's sort of sound hygiene. Because we we talked about sight with um an incredible man called Carl in Stockholm, who's a who, who was talking to us all about light. He he's got a book out with with some eye yoga. Is there anything we can do f- to help ourselves out? Is there anything I, any I, kind females of can carry?
2: Uh... Oh, what did you just pull out? <laughs> I pulled uh, some earplugs out of my bra because Love to it. to travel around in London. Do you London, keep each earplug in each side? No, get no just, well, yeah, yeah. I think it, you know you could do either, <laughs> yeah. but um, and I don't know. I mean, men men usually have pockets, but women often don't, yeah. and I they're, they're very reliable. <laughs> but we have bras. pockets. yeah, um, but <laughs> but I I definitely I I cannot come to London without these. Yes, it's, it's I a, keep the, my my, my, expi- my nostrils. <laughs> <laughs> My experience in London is 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 so traumatic, so that, especially underground. Really, yeah. is, it's so loud. Everything is so loud. Mm-hmm. But I also wear them when I sleep as well. as yeah. to sleep much more deeply that way.
1: I would caution though against um, wearing uh, earplugs too much, because too much, of course, of yeah. course, what happens is that you you get what's called a threshold shift, mm-hmm. where your kind of baseline level, sensitivity to sound mm. will change if you're constantly attenuating your sound. So when uh, when you then take your earplugs out and somewhere very loud, it will seem much, much louder yeah. than it was previously. I mean I should say also that a lot of people use noise cancelling headphones um, in order to kind of cope with very loud environments. And I don't want to make your listeners paranoid, but um, I <laughs> actually have thing. slight concern about those because yeah. what what people don't tend to realise is that the way that noise-cancelling headphones work is that they pump anti-noise into yep. the headphones, which is one half a cycle out of phase with the sound that you're hearing. No, I
0: can't do it. And it
1: cancels itself out.
0: So anti-noise is going a bit behind yeah. what you're hearing.
1: Yeah, one, exactly yeah. halfway back. It's length. a
0: totally Half-
2: traumatic experience for me.
0: Yeah, yeah. so,
1: so it kind of you, that kind of sucking sensation that you can <laughs> kind of feel when you put noise-canceling headphones on is because your, your brain is actually trying to sort of counteract this, this noise cancellation. And, and it is an active listening process, even though it might sound like silence, it's, it's not. So your brain is actually doing a lot of work yeah. all the time.
2: So it's quite taxing on the brain.
0: I
1: think so. Cognitively, yeah. it's, it's yeah. a high cognitive load. Yeah. Uh, they're gonna, interesting. They're yeah. going
2: someday. They're going to. They're going to ban them. I think. Well, let's
0: let's talk. I wanted to talk about the, the future of sound. Um, important for both of you. Uh, Nick. Yes. Radio, your BAFTA winning work. Let's come back to it. We briefly touched on it, but I think if you've got a BAFTA, we should just big that up again.
2: Totally.
0: Let's talk about your BAFTA winning <laughs> work. Go on then.
1: Well, he's looking all shy, but oh, now he's right. going for it. Come I'm on, come on! Very shy, right? <laughs> no, I, I um, I I created a a, a radio uh, drama um, many many years ago in two thousand and three with a colleague uh, called Izzy Mant, who's a, a radio producer and director, and a writer called Mike Walker, and the three of us created this this uh, radio show for Radio Four, and it was the first interactive radio drama. Um, ever broadcast. And what we did was we used uh, text messaging as a means of allowing the the audience to vote live for which of three characters' heads they were inside when they listened to so cool. a ghost story. And then I mixed it live on air and I watched the votes come in for each of the three characters and I chose every two minutes which character's perspective was most desired. Uh, so, so it kept
0: changing. What was it called?
1: It was called The Dark House. The Dark House. And and um, it, it taught us a lot about interaction, actually, which is something that my work in the future of sound is kind of exploring, we tend to think of sound uh, recording as being something that's fixed and linear. We're now moving into a very new phase of recorded sound, which is going to see a significant, a complete paradigm shift in our experience of music.
0: Are you excited? Very yes. excited. And so that paradigm
1: exciting. that paradigm shift is sound recordings becoming interactive. Yeah. Sound recordings becoming in responsive to us and our environment. And genera- your
0: radio was, was, was ahead of its time right? <laughs> it was I mean it was an interactive
1: <laughs> listening experience and we don't tend to think of listening experiences as being something that we can author or, or, or govern but that's, that's coming. You will be listening to your favourite artist in a completely different way in 10 years where the song that you're listening to will respond to your emotional state or the weather mm-hmm. or uh, where you are.
0: Wow. Okay. My gosh. So music in the future is very exciting. Um, and the stars. Kelly, <laughs>
2: NASA scientist. The planets, especially was the that, planet. Did you say 20 years? Yeah, yeah, 19 years I worked.
0: So from a rocket scientist to a music technologist. Tell us about that. What was NASA like?
2: <laughs> what, was what did it NASA sound like? like? What, sound, what sound would sum that up for you? People weren't very much aware of sound, I don't think. Um, although that's changing. They've just the one of the big biggest discoveries in astronomy recently with the LIGO system was was based on listening to the the cosmos I yeah I, I think I'm really fascinated with this as I was saying before from my childhood just the ability of our brains to decompose sound and the potential for that for us to experience our reality in new ways and I'm particularly excited about the idea of Something that is just is absolutely an ancient concept that uh, goes back even before the time of Pythagoras is this idea of the music of the spheres and this idea that the um, the cosmos has an an intrinsic order to it that's inherently musical that can be described by mathematics and in the early days of our evolution I guess in modern times I guess music was actually not seen as an art form or as a way of self uh, expressing yourself or for emotions, even music actually was part of the quadrivium, which was mathematics, geometry, astronomy, and music, and they were tools for exploring our universe, tools for exploring reality. And I'm super, super interested (laughs) and excited about the potential music has for connecting us to our reality in ways that we can't actually access at human scales. So the cosmos, particularly the planets and the way that the planets move with respect to each other, they're extremely beautiful. I brought a book that shows yep, show up, show some me. of the... Um, so, so this is really based on the work of Johannes Kepler, who made his discoveries about the way the solar system worked through using musical concepts so he used musical principles of harmony which he was convinced harmony was god's organizing principle and so if you look at i have Ke- kepler's original text from 1619 this is the 400th anniversary of his, of his text but it's just full of musical notation you can see like this is a scientific text but it's all it's all musical um and no one's ever heard this music before because it it was never believed to be audible music it was just music as a way of describing the order in the cosmos mm. and so they've th- not heard of it till now they've never heard no I, we still years. haven't heard yeah we still haven't heard it in and fact this is inspiring you yes this is i mean, this is why i'm building this instrument so i'm building an instrument that allows us to play these harmonies no biggie
0: she's building yeah. an instrument
2: <laughs> wow um so the solar system is just sitting there as this giant musical instrument just begging to be played so the Concordia- You're the one to do it. I'm Well, not just me, but I'm I'm like <laughs> devoting 2019 to building this.
1: I've just built an instrument too. Yeah, oh, Sorry,
2: um, is this what people do? Just yeah, yeah, just, it is. It is actually. Oh it's it's a kind of a new meta art of music is okay, building so your instruments. Your instrument's called Concordia. Concordia. It means harmony. It means harmony. Yeah. And Nick, your instrument?
1: My instrument's called Machine 9. And oh uh, there are interesting <laughs> parallels between these two. Projects because what my machine does, I've just just uh, it's on its way back from Tasmania, where I've is that where you just been? Yeah, so I was exhibiting it at um, Mona Foma Festival, which is part of the Museum of New Old and New Art in Tasmania. And uh, what my instrument does is it, it's a giant cylindrical phonograph, uh, and it's made of aluminium. It has a thousand grooves of sound engraved into its surface, and it tracks space debris orbiting the Earth and as pieces of spaced every pass directly overhead the instrument, it transforms them into sound. Wow. So we've, yep. we've, we've both... Do you feel yeah. like, we're, is we're on it on the like same
0: birthing way. a
2: child? Is it yes. like making a child? Oh, this definitely, for sure. And this is this, my you've baby. You've been 19 years. 19 been, years I've been trying to figure a sound. How long has Machine 9, uh, machine four nine years, been? Four years. Oh, my gosh.
1: Well, we're hoping to show it at Somerset House uh, sometime this year, uh, where I, I'm an artist-in-residence.
0: Fantastic. So Kelly, tell us. As well as Concordia, you've got the Mimu glove that Imogen Heap, Ariana Grande have been using and uh, using as a way to connect with their fans and make their music, I guess, even more incredible. Tell us what, how does it work, and um, what does it look like?
2: Yeah, Imogen Heap originally envisioned this uh, this, these gloves as a tool for her to be able to express herself uh, on stage with her music. In a, in a more complete way. So what the gloves are, are just a gestural, wearable technology that turn your movement into... Commands that the computer can recognize, so you can control music, you can control visuals, you can control robots. It's like a, a very fancy keyboard and mouse, um, but but gestural, and so and they're very, they're highly customized. So the artist can create their own gestural language for how they want to express themselves musically and visually. And so when you see Imogen working with these gloves, and you see, or you see someone like Chagall who is in so completely integrated dance with music and visuals she's controlling everything on stage just with her body and this is a very exciting breaking down of artificial boundaries between our visual experience our sonic experience our haptic experience our experiences and spaces and our way of relating to other people who are expressing themselves through art
0: So finally, we've got to finish up now, but I would love to ask you what can we share with what we've, um, well, what I've learned, you know it all already, what can we share with everyone listening to Live Life Better, some tips that they can um, very easily implement to just enjoy sound and enjoy music much more every day?
1: I think um, one of my top tips is to remind ourselves that listening is as much about silence as it is noise and to encourage people to reduce the noise that they have around them. And I think restaurants are one of the worst um, in, in London, agree. are absolutely horrendous. And people... I went to a restaurant the other day and I said, do you realise how painful the sound is in here? And the, the waiter said to me, we all have migraines at the end of every shift. And I said, well, all you need is some acoustic treatment like we have in here mm-hmm. in the studio here. Um, but that hadn't occurred to them. Um, so I think... Just moving away from noise is a really good tip for how sound can, the absence of sound can can make you feel much better.
0: Do you know, I found where I live, the only way to get any peace is to get up really early. So I started to do that a couple of times a week is just get up super early, um, around five, <laughs> which isn't always that appealing as I'm falling asleep, maybe around midnight. But that's where I find a bit of quiet and, and I a, do feel better for it.
1: And of course, but that, that's perfectly links to my second tip which is to listen to the dawn chorus the dawn chorus exists in urban and rural places and it's one of the most in england england is one of the most amazing places to listen to the dawn chorus even in london the dawn chorus is triggered it's thought by light levels and so birds at the top of the tree who receive more sunlight than birds at the bottom will start it And as the sun brightens and falls through the branches and if it's summer, the leaves, the birds increasingly lower down the tree will start singing and join them in in what is this magnificent call between all sorts of different species, interspecies. And uh, it's about an hour before dawn. Uh, there's a dusk chorus as well, but the best one is in the morning, an hour before the sun rises. I love that.
2: And in the spring, in the spring and in the fall, there's the nighttime ones as well, the night gales in there. Yeah, I love that.
0: So everyone at the top's waking up. So the ones down below they get a lion.
1: Yeah, yeah, and they start a bit later, like a few minutes later.
0: <laughs> okay, so
2: an hour before dawn. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, I love those tips. I have so many recordings of the dawn chorus, especially in Lewis, where I used to live. Oh it's yeah, just incredible.
0: Okay. And yeah. what are your
2: tips, Kelly? Well, Nick stole my tips. Yeah, those really. are great. I mean, Nick, those are great tips. I mean, it's the same for me. Just um, the biggest tip is to to just to be conscious and aware of the music that you're in fact polluting your environment with. I mean, a lot of people do it just by habit. Every time they're in the car, every time they're at home, or every time, right, the minute they wake up, they they put sound on to fill the space. And I think thinking of space as sacred. Not adding to the noise that's going into your head, but removing it as much as possible. Because mm. even if you're not if you're not consciously aware of it, any sound you're putting into your head is ca- causing yeah. your brain to do things. <laughs> because and I,
1: stop stop cycling yeah. with headphones on. Oh yeah, God! Just I take can't. those
2: earbuds out of your I ears. I can't
1: believe that people. <laughs> Don't yeah. consider it as a really Safety, dangerous thing to do, because yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know it's half. Well, it's one of your two primary senses, yeah. sound. Yes. and to you know cut that off as a, as a source of spatial awareness is.
2: I think any time you're w- walking or cycling or that you have any responsibility to other humans in your environment, you shouldn't be having other.
1: Okay,
0: so four incredible in tips. So, one is listen to the dawn chorus an hour before dawn. The second one, what was that, What was it, What was your first one, Nick?
1: Uh, remove yourself from sound. Remove yourself Reduce from sound. sound.
0: Reduce sound. Mm-hmm. The third one is. Please don't be when you're out. Take the earbuds take out. Take the earbuds out for your safety and everybody's. <laughs> um, everybody, thank you so very much for that. I don't like to have favorites with my podcast, but this is probably my favorite one so far. Absolutely mind blowingly fascinating. And I really feel that the advice you've given me is going to really impact so much of my life going forward, which is what we're all about here at Live Life Better. So where can we follow, I can't believe I'm going to say this, your musical instrument creation of Concordia? <laughs> where do we listen to uh, follow Concordia?
2: You can follow the project at concordia.world. You can also support it, patreon.com slash concordia if you would like to support the project. And then you can listen to the music of Luke Slot at lukeslot.com, L-U-K-E, S-L-O-T-T.
0: And Luke's Lot Year of the Nightingale, is the CD that um, Kelly has given me that I'm going to listen to. And I'm going to start with Garden of Thy Heart. Nick Ryan, <laughs> where can we follow you and your um, your instrument?
1: <laughs> Machine Nine. Uh, you can follow, follow that and lots of other projects at nickryanmusic.com. And specifically Machine Nine at projectadrift.co.uk
0: projectadrift.co.uk and I can't wait to see you come come visit you at Somerset House and of course a huge thanks again to Professor Trevor Cox you can follow him on Twitter at Trevor underscore Cox and also you can follow Salford Uni on Twitter too where he is well they're very lucky to have him as a professor so thank you again to Kelly and Nick thank you so much for being here thank you for having us thank you it's so
2: joyful to be here thank Thank you. you
0: I'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, if you'd like to know more about the guests on the show, you can also head over to virgin.com forward slash podcasts. And we'd love to hear if this show has inspired you, especially if you followed any of Kelly and Nick's tips. So get involved with the conversation on Twitter at Virgin using hashtag live life better. Live life better is a Pixie production for Virgin. Until next time from me, Melissa Hemsley, it's goodbye.